Let's begin our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. You are a God who continues to provide all that we need. You are a God who continues to protect. Uh, You are a God uh, who is exalted above the nations. You are a God who holds viruses in your hands. You are a God who holds your people dear and near. And Lord, we are in a a strange time, not just in America, but around the world, and um, trying to figure out how to do ministry, trying to figure out how to how to worship you um, in in our basements, in our living room. We are we, we praise you that you are a God who is omnipresent, that you are everywhere, that you don't reside in a sanctuary, that you don't confine yourself to a building, but you are at all places, at all times. Uh, you are near. You are holding us close and you are loving us dearly as your covenant people. So Lord, we do, uh, we cry out to you and we do pray for a quick end to this. I pray that we'd wake up tomorrow and, um, and that this would be over and that the medical professionals would just be baffled uh, by the quick end and uh, there would be all kinds of funny explanations, but that we as believers, uh, we would know uh, that it was our God who chose that this virus had run its course and that it was time to, uh, to get back to, uh, to doing things as normally as we can. Lord, I do pray for many in the church who are impacted uh, by this situation, whether it's their health or whether it's their livelihood, Lord. Uh, we pray that uh, you would continue to provide and care for, uh, that you would be exalted uh, in, in all things and, and in every circumstance. Lord, I pray that you would use uh, this season in life to strengthen life point, to strengthen uh, the bond that we have with one another, increase our love, not only for you, but our love for one another, uh, that you would bring us together quickly, where we can hear singing again, where we can participate in laughter again, where we're not just staring at screens and not just getting information, but that we are truly living life um, with one another, encouraging one another, and, uh, and growing uh, closer to you. So Lord, I pray now as we work our way through Genesis 4, uh, that you would continue to teach us the things that we don't know, that you would challenge us in areas where we need to be challenged, uh, that you would continue to shape and mold us more and more into the image of Jesus. Uh, Lord, help us to find joy in life and in this text, and may Christ be exalted. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, hello, church. Uh, It is good to, I would say it's good to be with you, but I'm not really with you. Uh, This is uh, kind of an odd thing, which I think uh, both Pastor Nate and Pastor Jim have expressed. Um, But uh, this has been a really unique situation in in my life uh, the last few weeks. And and, and I've had to kind of ask myself, Lord, what is it that you're teaching me? And and there are three things uh, really that I've learned. And I I just want to share them um, briefly with you. One is, is that I feel like I've learned to pray all over again. And um, the last time I felt this vulnerable in my life was shortly after my mom died. Um, But I kind of felt like I knew how to navigate through that. And and that prayer was just a a prayer for comfort. Uh, But the prayer life that, that, that has been part of my life over the last uh, month has been one of, of just kind of surrendering myself. I don't know how this ends. And, and um, you know, it's amazing when everything else is taken away, when all the noise is gone, and when all the, the tools and normal life aren't there, uh, you're left with God's word and prayer. 
that, that's it. And, and so I, I find myself just crying out to the Lord, and it's been just uh, very convicting um, to, to gather with so many of the college students who have, uh, every Sunday night and every Wednesday night, we gather, we read scripture together, and then we just pray. And I've been very um, comforted by their faces and by their regular presence on Zoom meetings and, and devoting an hour to an hour and 15 minutes on a regular basis just to praying together. So if nothing else comes of this, that has been a tremendous blessing to me. The second thing I've learned is, is kind of how to rest, right? There's no activity. Um, and, and sometimes we think our rest is maybe on a Sunday afternoon we take a nap. But I think it means, you know, biblically we rest when we trust God to provide and trust God to work through situations. And so uh, I think there's been a new theology of rest that has uh, kind of infiltrated our home. And then the last thing uh, that, that really has been impressed upon my heart is, is I've learned to love my flock in a different way. And, you know, one of the things that I pray for as one of your shepherds is that God will always be increasing my affection for you guys um, as, I, as I model, hopefully, my ministry after that of Jesus. Um, and the affection that I have for you has only grown in your, in your absence. And I've learned to love you guys in a different way. And so uh, I really do. I miss laughter. I miss seeing faces. I miss uh, being part of your lives. Um, and while phone calls and Zoom meetings are really good in one sense, um, I do miss the joy and laughter of genuine community. But I do get glimpses of that. And you guys, even though we're, we're separate, you guys still have a way of, of humbling me. Um, and uh, I, a couple of weeks ago, I called one of the ladies in the church just to check up on her. She answered the phone and I said, hello. And she said, well, who is this? And I said, well, this is your favorite pastor. And uh, she said, well, Pastor David, you called me yesterday. And I said, no, it's not Pastor David. This is Pastor Nate. And she said, is this uh, big word Nate or small word Nate? And uh, so not only was I humbled in realizing that I was not this lady's uh, favorite pastor, but apparently I'm also the stupid pastor. Well, so then when Jim this week announced that uh, via his little uh, video announcements that I would be bringing the word this morning, I got a number of, of, of encouraging texts from you all. One, uh, which read this, I'm excited that I can turn you off at any moment in your message and just claim that my internet didn't work. Uh, and then uh, the, my favorite one was this, it said, Nate, you will be speaking to an empty auditorium, which will be really good practice if you ever leave LifePoint and become a lead pastor somewhere, because you will regularly be speaking to an empty auditorium then too. Uh, so, uh, man, I miss you guys. I'm not sure why in light of those things, but I really do miss you. Well, if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Genesis chapter 4, where we're going to look at verses 17 through 24 this morning. Now, it's been two weeks since we've been in Genesis. We took Sunday off for Palm Sunday, and then obviously last week uh, was Resurrection Sunday. So let me kind of just recap where we are in the story. In the first two chapters, we see that God is, is creating his world. He's fashioning it. He's speaking things into being. And, and the first verse of the Bible thunders off the pages. It says, in the beginning, God. And those four words set the tone for the rest of the story. They remove any equals to God's power, and they put man in his place as the creation. Man is not God. Man is the creation of a sovereign God. So God speaks everything into being except man. And what he does with man is he gathers some dust and he breathes life into him. And so already we're pointed to the fact that there's something unique about humanity moving forward. Well, this man, Adam, is placed in a garden 
with God as his king. And Eden is viewed as a sanctuary where Adam would worship and work with his king. And then God graciously provides Eve from a rib from Adam's side so that he would have a helpmate. And so Adam has everything that he needs. He's in the presence of God. He's got a helpmate. Everything is provided for him. But we see that Adam and Eve did not necessarily like the stipulations that God had placed upon them. And they choose to eat the fruit of the forbidden tree. The result is that they are cast away from the presence of God. They're removed from Eden. Now, God doesn't wipe them out. He graciously allows them to live, even though the consequences of their sin are going to impact their lives for a long time. You see, every relationship that Adam and Eve have are going to be impacted. Man's relationship with God is impacted. They are removed from his presence and they are going to need an intercessor, one who goes between the two of them so that God and his holiness does not consume Adam and Eve. We see man's relationship with his wife is impacted. They're no longer going to just walk side by side in perfect harmony. They are going to struggle uh, through life. Eve is going to want Adam's position, and Adam is going to have a tendency because of his physical strength to suppress and abuse his wife. Man's relationship with the ground is impacted. It's still going to bring forth fruit, but it's also going to bring forth thorns and thistles, and it's going to take a tremendous amount of work just to eat. And then man's relationship with his brother is impacted in chapter 4. We see right away where Cain, in jealousy, he slaughters his brother Abel. Sin has impacted everything. We're only four chapters into the Bible, and we have a mess on our hands already. But all is not lost, because remember that great promise given in chapter 315. There is one promised who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent But humanity, for its existence on this earth, is going to be marked by constant heel strikes. These reminders that we live in a fallen world. Feudal work. There's going to be pain. There's going to be viruses. They're all going to serve as reminders that something is wrong. This is what Adam and Eve chose outside of Eden. They chose a world that is going to seek to wound and destroy them. And death is coming. But in chapter 315, there is more to that verse than simply a promise. There's also, in those few short words, really the entire plot of the Bible. The story is going to be of two seeds moving forward, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And these two people are typified in chapters 4 and 5 of Genesis. Chapter 4 will be about the offspring of Cain and will continue to grow and ultimately be personified in Lamech at the end of this list of names, a man who boasts in his wickedness and even sings about it. Chapter 5 is largely about the seed of Seth, and that is culminated in Enoch, who is one who walks with God. Now, these two seeds are going to be primary players throughout the rest of the Bible. The seed of the serpent starts off as a snake in the garden and grows in its fruition to a dragon in Revelation. This serpent who has now grown so large and destructive that we see him as a huge dragon. He's going to constantly seek to wipe out the seed of the woman. And we see this in Egypt when Pharaoh tries to kill the male children. We see it in every exile as Israel is removed from the land. And we see it as Herod tries to kill the males during the time of Jesus. The Bible is an unfolding of a great story of the serpent constantly trying to strike a fatal blow into the heel of this promised line 
And yet God's faithfulness in battling and sustaining this godly line. And so as you read through the Bible, pay attention to how often the promise in 3.15 seems to be on the verge of failing. How many times when it appears all hope is gone and God will bring forth from the shadows another offspring of the promised line, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ to fulfill that promise. And we see in Revelation that he is on the white horse and he slays the dragon once and for all. So it's a great story with lots of drama. And even here at the end of chapter 4 and 5 in Genesis, we begin to see these two lines diverge. And so we tend to read it as just a list of names in 4 and 5, but there is so much drama being built up here. And so really today's message is just part one in a two-part message that Pastor Jim will finish up next week. So I'm going to read from Genesis 4, 17 through 24. If you'd like to stand in your living room or basement, feel free to do that. It reads this. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he named the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahushael, and Mahushael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was, was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zalah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Let me pray. Lord, your word is living and active, and I pray that it would penetrate our hearts, shape our lives, and help us to love you more. Thank you for the blessing that it is to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. It's important for us to remember the context of Genesis. Genesis is being written as the people are coming out of 400 years of slavery. They're in the wilderness. They have no written revelation at this point. And so Moses is in a sense reminding them of things. He, there's a polemic element to Genesis. He's saying, you, in 400 years while you were in Egypt, here's what you heard, but I'm here to tell you the truth. And so it's almost as if he's saying, look, in Egypt you heard that a pagan god crawled out of the water and created the land, but I'm telling you God spoke it into being. In Egypt you heard that Ra is the sun god that provides light, but I'm telling you God spoke light into being. You heard that there are multiple gods, but I'm telling you in the beginning God, singular, there's one supreme God. He's giving them a history lesson here in hopes of reminding them that this promise in Genesis 3.15, remember there are people in the wilderness now and they're, they're going to be hungry and they're going to be hot and it's going to be barren and dry and they're going to wonder when will we flourish again like Adam did in Eden. And Moses is reminding them that God is fulfilling this promise that there's going to come one who is going to make all things new again. 
And then in a few more verses, you're going to see a promise given to Noah that Moses is going to remind them of. And then a covenant forged with Abraham that uh, Moses is reminding them of as well. It's really a testimony to God's faithfulness, even in the midst of these growing shadows. And so what we have now in chapter 4 is this explanation of how rapidly sin has grown. And Moses does this by showing really two distinct family lines, one from Cain and one from Seth which we'll look at more next week. You see, there are only two types of people in the world, the people of the world and the people of God. There's no in-between. This is the premise of St. Augustine's great work entitled The City of God, where he says this, there are two cities formed by two loves, the earthly love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. You see, the former has its fullest biblical expression. The city of the world, its fullest expression is seen in Babylon. And the other in the covenant people of God, the people of faith. One is destined to pass away and the other to endure with Christ forever. Two people, two cities, two seeds, two destinies. You're either a rebel or you're a worshiper. Look at verse 16. Then Cain, went, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So right there you have two ominous signs. He goes away from the presence of the Lord and he goes east. You remember Pastor Meese walked us through what that direction means biblically, that it is a picture of evil and being cast uh, from the presence of God. In verse 17, uh, Cain finds a wife and she bears a son and they name him Enoch. And Cain builds a city and he names it after his son. Now that begs the question, where does Cain find a wife? And you know what, we just simplify it. Cain marries his sister. Adam and Eve lived hundreds of years. They would have had multiple children. We see that Cain is at least aware of this when God casts him away. And he says, remember, they're going to murder me. So there's other people around. It probably grew at an exponential rate uh, if you're having children for hundreds of years. So it's reasonable. Um, and there's more to the gene pool and things that I just probably can't explain, nor do I have time to. Um, but there are other people around at this point. So don't get hung up on that detail. Uh, Moses is certainly just proclaiming it. He's not explaining all the details to us. Now, as I read this, I was struck by the graciousness of God in his common grace to sinners and rebels. So Cain had been a murderer. He's marked for sin. He's removed for the presence of God. And yet, look at the things that God allows him to enjoy. He continues to let him live. He finds the blessings of a wife, and he even has children. These are all things that he didn't deserve. He had spurned God. He didn't want to obey God. And even after God came to him and said, hey, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. You better be careful here. It's desires for you. You need to rule over it. I mean, he has this interaction with God. And even in the midst of that, he chooses to pursue his own desires. And yet in the midst of this rebellion, God still allows him to enjoy many good things. And that's one of the main things that I want you to take away from this morning. God's grace is such that he allows wicked, evil rebels to enjoy good gifts on earth. It's one of the things that we struggle to understand when we look around and we say, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the evil go about in nice houses and nice cars and they seem to live forever with no health problems? 
Psalm 73 asks that question. Lots of psalms. There's numerous times where the people are crying out and saying, God, why do you let the wicked go free? But in this, we're forced to recognize God's goodness in allowing it to reign on the righteous and the wicked alike. The wicked still enjoy good music. They produce good music. They still enjoy the good taste of a meal and the feel of a cool breeze on their skin. They still get to delight in their wives and in their husbands. And they're given skills and gifts. We see lots of that here in chapter 4 as this rebellious line takes shape. Look at all that these men accomplish. They build cities. They get married. They have offspring. But even in the midst of what seems like blessing... There's this ominous signal in the writings because their names have meanings that are lost on us. And this is one of the the troubles with not speaking Hebrew is there's so many literary devices that are lost on us. Uh, This is where the language barrier really can take something away from the text. It would be like me telling you a story about a man who has no backbone, who people take advantage of and they walk all over him and then come to find out his name is Matt, right? I mean, it it makes sense in that regard. Or, and this one hits really close to home here, you have a man who's very concerned with what he looks like, his hair's always done perfectly, Um, he's he's always making sure he's doing his push-ups, he's ripped, right? He would never miss a workout session and we come to find out his name is Jim, right? Jim spends time in the gym. That would make sense to us. Or a story about a woman who goes fishing in Florida and an alligator uh, jumps up and eats one of her legs off and we come to find out her name is Eileen. That's just funny. Sorry. Hopefully nobody's offended by that. But these are details in these names that are lost on, that they would be lost on a Spanish speaker, but they would make sense to us in, in English and there would be great irony there. Well, similarly in Hebrew, that the names just aren't names. They are representative of something else. That they're pointing to a situation, a character trait, or even something greater. They may rhyme with something or be a play on words. And so while it appears in verse 18 that Cain's line is flourishing, we see something more behind the scenes. Here in the middle of this little section, we see the name Mahushael, which means smitten by God, and the name Methushael, which might mean, and there's some disagreement here among commentators, but it might mean the violence of God. So even though it appears that this line is flourishing in their rebellion, we're reminded that God sees them in their rebellion and that they will have to give an account for this and that nothing goes unnoticed. We see this iniquity then is escalating even under the watchful eye of God. And then comes Lamech. And Lamech is the seventh generation from Adam, and seven being the number of biblical completeness. It's as if Moses is saying the completeness of Cain's line, the fullness of this wicked uh, seed of the serpent, is culminated in Lamech. Interestingly enough, we find that contrary to this, that uh, next week in chapter 5, verse 22, that Enoch is the seventh generation from Adam on Seth's line, and we see his end is that he walks with God. So Moses is very clearly laying out for us two paths. Wickedness, which results in violence and destruction, and righteousness, which results in renewed walking with God like Adam did in the garden. Now, the older I get, the more that I love these literary nuances uh, of Scripture, and I'm sure Jim will hit a little bit more on the, the, the symbolic nature of that line next week. But back to Lamech. 
And there are a few interesting things here that I want to point out. The first here is that he marries two wives. Now, we know that God had ordained marriage to be between one man and one woman, but here you see this blatant rebellion against the design of God. Now, contrary to what is, what is taught, man didn't start out as a polygamist and then evolve to monogamy. Instead, they started out with monogamy and devolved into polygamy. And anytime we see polygamy in the Bible, it's not blessed by God. There's always something that, that is, that's happening, and it never results in anything good. Monogamy is God's design from the beginning. And I think Moses specifically mentions Lamech taking two wives as illustrative of his wicked perversion against God's building blocks for society, even at its most basic root. But even the names of his wives hint at Lamech's carnality. Adah means pleasure or ornament or beauty, and Zalah means shade. And that would have a significant context to a wilderness people in the desert, wouldn't it? It it points, I think, to the shallowness and the carnality of of Cain's line expressed in Lamech. But even then, even in the midst of this, God bestows common grace to this polygamist couple. Three boys are born. You have Jubal, Jabal, and Tubal Cain. I have a hard time keeping my daughter's name straight. I can't even imagine having them sound that similar. But all three of these Hebrew names have the stem, the same Hebrew stem, Yabal, which means to produce. And so Jabal is the first cattle rancher. He's he's involved in animal husbandry. He's domesticating animals and probably has something to do with genetics. Jubal produced music and developed instruments. And you think about how difficult that would be. It's one thing to learn to play the piano. It's a whole nother thing if there is no piano, there is no instrument, there, is no, there are no notes, and you're the developer of these things. This is a tremendous accomplishment. And then we have Tubal Cain, which incidentally connects us back to the start of this sinful line as he's partially named after his, uh, his wicked uh, grandfather Cain. And so Tubal Cain is a forger. He makes things from metal. He, he goes into the ground, he pulls out elements, and he fashions tools, um, and, he, and he creates. And even in his creation, uh, creating, he's reflecting the image of God who has given him life. And so you see, God's grace is poured out on this rebellious line. Christians, we don't have a monopoly on the good things of this earth. Pagans create and produce as well, if not better at times, than many Christians. They can be great writers, musicians, and poets. They can design amazing things. They can be the world's best surgeons because they're still created in God's image. And he has designed man to work the earth and to subdue it. And even in their pagan rebellion, they can still do these things well. Have you ever stopped to consider the kindness of God that allows sinful rebels to exist in his world and enjoy his good gifts? Gifts that he has given them and gifts that they continue to enjoy with no thought of the giver. A world that is replete with good tastes and good sounds and good smells, but they fail to see the goodness of God in it. And instead, they see themselves as deserving of these gifts and they're building their own kingdom. They're erecting their own city. And they're probably really good at it. These people lived hundreds of years. Imagine how good of a musician you could be if you had five or six hundred years to hone your craft. 
And so these people were far more advanced than we give them credit for. They're not just studying something for 40 years and then passing their research on to somebody else. They are completely devoted. I mean, imagine a chemist if they had 700 years to really study viruses, how quickly they could probably come up with antidotes and vaccines. And so these people live a long time. They're probably really good at what they do. And so despite this common grace, despite the building of their kingdom, we see Revelation 18 tells us that this worldly city has a tragic end, starting in verse 21. And I want you to see the similarities between what's mentioned of what these three boys are doing and then what's destroyed here in Revelation. It says, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of the harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. It's tragic. And so while the wicked are allowed to flourish for a time, God's patience does run out and he will bring these wicked cities to ruin. And so even the pagans around us who are enjoying these good gifts, that will not last forever. Now, again, we need to be sharing the gospel with these people because that is tragic if they die not knowing Jesus Christ. But they, they don't get away with their rebellion, right? They will be smitten by God or there will be a violence of God put upon them, which we saw in the names of, of Cain's ancestors there. All of this, their destruction is pointing not only forward to, to chapter 6 through 10 where we see the flood and the Tower of Babel in a few more chapters, which is dispersed and ruined, but ultimately this is pointing to Revelation and what we just read. Well, Lamech's wickedness is fully expressed in his song. Let me read it to you again. Adah and Zalah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. You see, Lamech is boast, boasting of his violence and his vengeance. And one commentator says he, in essence, is spitting in the face of God by saying he's better able to take care of himself by murdering others than God was able to take care of Cain. It's as if he's saying, I run things better than God. God put a mark on my old man Cain in order to protect him, but I'm perfectly able to protect and provide for myself. This is not just violence. This is a man who's singing about his violence. He's taking pride in it. This is the epitome of a humanistic culture that is built on pride and pleasure. It's a culture that's lost all concept of the authority of God. It feels no obligation to him, no gratitude to him. It offers no love for him or fellow man, even in the midst of these apparent blessings and this common grace, which is washing over them. And it appears, if you're reading this, that the serpent is winning. Where is the righteousness? Where is the justice? Where is this hero, this serpent crusher? Because in chapter 4, wicked are flourishing. And then there's silence. And I know this isn't part of our text, but I do want to read verses 25 and 26. Because I think that white space between those verses in 24 and 25 is significant. That's where the drama has built. Because in 25 it says this. 
And Adam knew his wife again. And you can imagine the music beginning to play because there's an offspring who's coming. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So that mention of offspring again. The music's getting louder. The hero is beginning to emerge. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And here's the hope. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There is the hope. You see the drama that's building in this list of names. It it reminds me of that scene in The Princess Bride where where Wesley is in the pit of despair and he dies. If you remember the the, the movie, a grandpa has showed up to read the story to his grandson. And the grandson interrupts the story and says, no, grandpa, wait, Wesley can't be dead. You're ruining the story, grandpa. The hero can't die. And verses 25 and 26 that we look at next week are the reminder that the promise is only mostly dead, right? It's not dead. It just looks that way. This is the way that God works. The wicked seem to win, but God is faithful to keep his promises. There's always a remnant. The seed of the woman prevails. The serpent crusher was dead on the cross. He was buried in a tomb. All hope was lost. The disciples scatter. And then up from the grave, he arises. And the serpent crusher lives. Now ponder the pause in between those two verses again. The story of Cain's line, it just ends. It ceases. He's never heard from again. Lamech and his lawless family, they disappear. In the shadow of the song of the sword, we hear the gentle splashes of this rising waters as a flood prepared to swallow them all in judgment. They were ungodly rebels who refused to bow down before God. While they were given hundreds of years to repent and change their course, they didn't. And so God eventually judges them and they will perish. And nothing that they build lasts. And there's so much drama here. And I wish we could read these lists of names um, with probably the drama that they were intended to have. But friends, there's so much here that I want to point out, um, and one in particular point as we wrap this up, and that is this. The nature of sin is to spread. Temptation gave rise to jealousy in Cain, and this was followed by murder, which led to generation after generation of rebellion, and it culminates in Lamech's pride and vengeance expressed in a song. And sin is no different today. It's a contagion which I find interesting to think about in light of this coronavirus. Because all we've heard for months now are about all these precautions that we need to take, social distancing. We need to put on masks. We need to wash our hands. All in all, we need to be vigilant at every turn. Uh, Sin in the same way, if left unchecked, it will grow. Small sins become habits, and habits become legacies, and legacies become our identities. And identities then lead to our destruction. What if we were as concerned about sin and unholiness in our lives as we were about this virus? What if we lived our spiritual lives as cautiously as we're living our physical lives now? I mean, I went to Meyer the other day and I'm just walking down the aisle and everybody's looking at each other like they're unclean. And I don't know what it was like for a leper in the camp of Israel, but that's what I feel like. I walk by and everybody just scoots over and gives me, gives me my space. So they walk by and you can see them holding their breath as we pass. What if we were that cautious with letting sin infiltrate our lives? Here's what John Owens writes. 
Do you mortify sin? In other words, do you kill it? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Isn't this what James writes in chapter 115 when he says, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And that is what we see here in Genesis 4, that this, this conceived sin is now beginning to bloom and is going to bring forth death, which we're going to see in a few chapters as this flood sweeps over in judgment and wipes out this wicked people. Look, I have no idea what would have happened if Cain would have simply repented after he killed Abel. But we see in this line a very clear picture of temptation giving birth to sin, which brings forth death, and it's even celebrated in Lamech's song. And if we don't see that in our culture, then we are blind. We just promote our freedoms and our sin, and we put it out there, and we mock God in a very similar way. Well, I want to close with reading Psalm 1, and I'm going to read its entirety. It's only six verses, which I think is a really good um, illustration of these two lines in Genesis 4 and 5. And here's what it says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. One people last, one people are blown away. There are two cities. One is destroyed and one is forgotten. One is ruled by a serpent who has already lost the war and yet he is still thrashing about trying to take people with him, still deceiving the nations. The other is ruled by a risen and glorious king. And here is the description of that city as we close. I want to read from Revelation 21, 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Friends, there are just two people in the world. They're the people of the world, and they're the people of God. They're the people whose names are blotted out, and there are those that will dwell eternally written in the Lamb's book of life. And so may we bow down before Jesus Christ, our serpent crusher, the seed of Seth, the seed of the woman that is going, at all, going to at all times look to be snuffed out, always look to be on the mat, knocked out, but will stand up in victory one day. He has bore our sins so that we can be clean entering into the city. He's taken the penalty so that we can go free. And he's risen from the dead so that we might live and reign with him. 
And so we may, may we find our name in the Lamb's book of life. Amen? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for the promise that you've given us. We thank you for uh, the actions that you have taken in sending your son and redeeming a people for yourself by, by taking our sin upon you on the cross, by taking that wrath that Lamech has to bear because he doesn't have a substitute, because he didn't take a knee before his king. And I pray that we would have the humility to bow before our king in humble need with open hands, recognizing that we need forgiveness. We need your grace. We need a better substitute. We need one who is perfect. And we thank you that we are given that standing, that you have placed your affection upon us. I pray that our faith would only increase more and more as this day of your return approaches, that we would be always looking to the, to the clouds, Lord, and, and I pray for your return, even today. It would be great if this message never even got to the, uh, to the internet, uh, that we would gather uh, at the foot of the throne, that we would be ushered into that city when all of this stuff, all the kingdoms we have built will be wiped away, but the eternal kingdom of God, of our King Jesus, will be all that is left. Give us a vision for that glory. May we kill sin in our lives as we pursue the purity that Jesus requires and the purity that he has given. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.